0: Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surrett and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership po- Podcast, presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. This is the fourth part of our six-part se- six series related to Dr. John Dugan's new book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. In this episode, we're going to discuss the accompanying book titled Leadership Theory, A Facilitator's Guide for Cultivating Critical Perspectives. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by two of the authors of the Facilitator's Guide, Dr. Natasha Turman and Dr. Amy Barnes. Dr. Natasha Turman is the Project Manager for the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership at Loyola University Chicago, where she recently com- completed her Ph.D. in higher education. Natasha has a B.S. in Chemistry from Spelman College and an M.S. in Educational Leadership and Policy from Old Dominion University. Dr. Dr. Amy Barnes is the Director of the Hesse ee EDD program in the Department of Educational Studies at the Ohio State University. She's also the coordinator of the undergraduate uh, the undergraduate leadership studies minor. Amy completed her undergraduate work at the College of William and Mary, her MA from the Ohio State University, and returned to William and Mary for her doctoral degree. Welcome, Natasha and Amy.
1: Hi, Ma. Hello.
0: Well, I'm uh, so pleased to. To have you all and be able to talk about the facilitator's guide. So we'll get started just with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask a few big silly questions and limit you all to 30 second responses. Um, so uh, we can accommodate a full discussion of the facilitator's guide. We're going to go with an especially rapid form of rapid fire today. Are you all ready? Yeah. Ready. Okay, great. So my first question is for both of you all. What is the funniest thing you all learned about John Dugan while collaborating on this book?
2: Okay, I can start. This is Amy. Um, So very early in the process when we were having some preliminary meetings and we were still getting to know each other as collaborators, um, I learned that John was um, really great at not taking himself too seriously. Um, (laughs) And I learned this because after a working session together in the middle of winter in Chicago, we went to leave the building and the stairwell outside was very icy. And right after we both warned each other that the stairwell was icy, we both slipped and fell simultaneously down an entire flight oh of stairs. Oh my god! I don't oh, think I remember the story. <laughs> it was the most mortifying and hilarious experience of my professional career because I landed smack dab on top of John.
1: Um, oh goodness!
2: <laughs> basically broke my fall, uh, for which I'm very grateful, and the experience was figuratively and literally, you know, the breaking of
0: the ice between us since we weren't hurt, which is good, um,
2: and we've laughed a lot about it since then. Oh literal wow, that's literal
0: icebreaking that's so good yeah.
1: Yes exactly Yes <laughs> Amy, I don't think I can top that. I was just going to say that you will realize that <laughs> there will never be um, a session, a, 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 a meeting session, without a story from John. Like, he is the true storyteller. And so you just have to automatically allot about 30 minutes in the beginning to hear uh, the latest and greatest uh, story that's happened. And it just get, it sets the tone for the entire session. So that's I can always look forward to John having an amazing uh a story that we can all laugh um, at as we're working every time we met uh, with our Ohio State team, with the Lo- Lo- Loyola team. Um, there was always a story, like never failed. So he always set the tone very wonderfully for our meetings.
0: <laughs> great, great. So, uh, Natasha, the, the next question I have for you, we ask on all of our, for all the guests on the podcast. So what is your favorite book about leadership?
1: I mean, the one that just got written uh, <laughs> by the <laughs> wonderful John Dugan and Amy Barnes and all these lovely collaborators. Um, it's actually, yeah, it's. it's I'm going to go with that one. I'm sorry if I stole your answer, Amy, but <laughs> I just feel like that has to be the favorite one. Like, that's what it is, because you get to just wow. be a part of it. So it's my favorite.
2: <laughs> I agree, but in the attempt to not suck up too much um, to our co-author, I um I honestly tend to prefer books that aren't necessarily about leadership, about or leadership. maybe don't mm-hmm. about don't don't claim to be, but are somehow related. Um, and this past semester, I used the book um, called *The Originals* by oh. Adam Grant mm-hmm. in a leadership class, um, and it was really wonderful for discussing. Innovation and creativity in leadership. Um, I also appreciated that it did address in one of the chapters how power and privilege can impact whether or not your creative ideas are taken seriously in the workplace, which I do relate to the content of this book, um, and that was mm. that was great. So that's a good one, the originals. That's awesome.
0: Okay, great. All right, so uh, Natasha, how do the Real Housewives of Atlanta relate to leadership studies?
1: How did you know? That's one of my guilty pleasures, Miles. Um, <laughs> well, for any of our listeners who uh, are, have that as one of their guilty pleasures, as do I, I feel like all the Housewives shows are the epitome of LMX theory. Later membership exchange. There are in and out groups, and they really show you what complex leadership approaches looks like on a day to day basis in our real lives. Even though we claim to be relational, it's LMX theory all day, every day. So I get I get to to be to, I get to deconstruct and reconstruct uh, my housewives shows, um, looking at it through some uh, leadership theories, and that's the most pronounced one for me.
0: <laughs> okay, great. So, uh, Amy, how does so to re, uh, another uh, another seemingly unrelated uh, con- content? Uh, area related to leadership. How does parenthood teach lessons about leadership?
2: Yeah, so I have two little kids, and um, I think in a couple of different ways, but I'll eliminate just a couple for time. One is um, that you really do learn to admit your mistakes and failures um, because you make a lot of mistakes as a parent, and uh, I've had to learn from a lot of those mistakes. They can be some hard lessons, um, and I think that really relates to Um, leadership and that I think leaders should be, you know, being honest about when they do make a mistake and and recovering from that mistake. Um, I also think that empowerment, empowering others, um, has been something I've learned a lot about. You know, you can't do everything for your kids. You have to really um, allow them to take risks on their own and become their own little people and their own little person. And I think um, leadership is the same way because, you know, the hands-off approach, where you're empowering others to take the lead um, and really grow and develop into their own leadership capacities, is really important. So I try to model that both as a parent and as a teacher in the classroom.
0: Okay, all right. So Natasha, I know that you are—I uh, know that you're a big foodie. So if you were going to impress with one meal, what would you cook?
1: Oh, there's so many that everyone loves, but my favorite—that it's like presentation and, you know, really looks beautiful on the plate. Uh, And I think when I think about that with leadership, it's just always putting our best self forward. It would be uh, my grilled shrimp with lobster cream sauce um, served with wilted spinach and Parmesan polenta. It's a a hit. Everyone loves it. And it looks so pretty on the plate. I'll have to make it for you two one day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Amy, I know that you, uh, I know that you love HGTV. So, if you were going to make a renovation to your home, what would you pick, and and what was the inspiration for that choice?
2: Yeah, I think I would honestly choose, you know, those really elaborate, um, really wonderful outdoor living spaces. um, Mm. Whether that be, you know, the the fancy grill and the patio with the seating or the the outdoor kind of entertainment center um, looks really nice. Do you have, would you have a bonfire? Like or, you know, you call yeah, fire pit I mean, like the fire, pit, <laughs> the fire pit. The fire pit. The, I have this one friend who has just a really, really beautiful sort of backyard entertainment space with the TV and everything mm. and sofas, and I just think that's really, it would be a, an escape, you know, a place to relax and rejuvenate, and I just, I enjoy the outdoors, so I think it would be cool to have something like that. It's definitely a luxury, though, not something that very many people can afford to have. Definitely. Okay.
0: All right. So we're going to transition to our next segment, which is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So uh, I'm going to provide two true, stor- two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and Natasha and Amy will have to parse out the lie. So today-
1: <laughs> Amy, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs>
0: All right, so today's theme is freedom of expression. Are you ready for your three options? Gosh, yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So the first option is that the Burlington Free Press recently reported a unique form of protest. University of Vermont student Timothy Zeller has been living in the woods near campus since the presidential election. Mr. Zeller is inhabiting a tent and refuses to move indoors until President Trump is removed from office. The Burlington Free Press quoted Zeller as saying, this is the beginning of a movement. Lots of people opted out of housing next year and are joining me in this new Trump bill. I believe the Trump bill reference there is a it's a reference to Hoovervilles. Uh, mm. So uh, the the next option is that state legislature state legislator, Cedric Glover, recently caused controversy in his state of Louisiana. Representative Glover introduced legislation that would prevent public universities in the state from licensing official alcoholic beverages. This would prohibit LSU and University of Louisiana Lafayette from their current agreements with local breweries. The Advocate, which is a paper in Baton Rouge, quoted Representative Glover as saying, Deep in my heart, I just know it's wrong for us as a state to allow a public university to put our official stamp of approval on an alcoholic beverage. So that's your second option. And then your last option. Uh, comes from a report from the Post and Courier in Charleston, which recently reported that the College of Charleston kicked a student out of the on-campus George Street Fitness Center for wearing a crop top. After the student in question shared the incident on Facebook and garnered more than 1,000 likes, the university responded. A university spokesperson said, the fitness center asked its attendees to wear T-shirts to reduce skin contact with exercise equipment, and I quote, for sanitary reasons. So those are your three options. We've got uh, we've got uh, Trump bills in Vermont. We have uh, we have beer licensing licensing in Louisiana, or we have crop tops in Charleston. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man! Um, well, I mean, seeing as how you can open carry, uh, not open carry, but have open beverages in Louisiana, and I think the drinking age is like 18. I don't know. It seems like it's that young. I'm I feel like that one's the lie, but I don't know, Amy. Is this supposed to be a collaborative ex- oh, exercise? Yeah, we're smile? supposed to collaborate.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> that
1: one's my uh, that one's my vote. Um, I... That's the lie, but I'm not. And the first one sounds lie, it sounds so off, uh, far-fetched, but I think that it could be real just because it's so far-fetched.
2: Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I 100% believe the crop top one is true.
1: Yes, I do. Um, <laughs>
2: Yeah. Uh, and let's see. I See, I think the first one just sounded a bit too much to me. It, it was fine until it got to the part where it said all these other people are going to join me in the woods next year. And then I thought that's maybe over the top.
1: Okay. I don't know, the alcohol one. We got to decide. We gotta decide.
2: The alcohol the one. The first is one just was my second choice, bill. so yeah. The second I one just, was just a bill, right? It wasn't actually put into place. It's just somebody proposing a bill, I think.
0: That is what it says. Which, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, which is just one person's stance on an issue, which seems plausible to me. Um, mm, I, I'm good with one or two. You pick, Natasha.
1: Okay, we'll just we'll go with we'll go with one, Miles. Even though I'm feeling like this liquor one is the lie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so uh, y'all are correct. That is right. That is the fake one. Uh, so <laughs> Good as choice, far Amy. as I know, <laughs> nice.
2: there
0: are no University of Vermont students that are living in the woods. But that <laughs> that was inspired. I I did know a guy that I went to college with did go and live in the woods for a while. So,
2: okay, And in protest?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a different purpose for him. I, I believe that he uh, thought that there was some sort of, um, uh, some sort of like um, spiritual revelation that was coming to him and he had to be in the woods for it. But, okay, uh, all right. Yeah, r- regardless, yep, yeah, y'all y'all uh, caught that. So that does mean that, uh, that Representative Cedric Glover is trying to uh, prevent the licensing yeah. agreement. Allegedly, yeah. some of his counterparts in the Louisiana legislature claim that Representative Glover has like a has an axe to grind with LSU in particular, so that's mm. what that's about. Mm. And uh and y'all are totally right, uh the uh College of Charleston student was kicked out for wearing the uh for wearing the crop, crop top. top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An interesting note about the crop top is that she did say that she had been going around all day in the crop top and hadn't had any problems and was surprised that the fitness center was the place where she would have a problem. Um the whole thing is hmm. yeah, the whole Very thing is confusing to me. Um <laughs> So, Where anywho, did you find
1: these stories from, Miles?
0: <laughs> I, I told you all, there's a lot of research. A lot of research. A lot, lot of research. Of research, <laughs> lot of research. So, well, and then I have to write the fake story, which is a challenge as well.
2: All right. <laughs> yeah, well done. Well done on the fake well story. Well done. Yes, well Thank done. you,
0: thank you, and well done on your guessing. This is just a mutual back-padding process. So, <laughs> all right, so let's move on to the main segment. So, uh, Natasha, we'll start with you. Uh, I was hoping uh, you could give us a rundown on the origin of the facilitators guide and how did these projects to so this being the facilitators guide and the, the textbook itself how do they line up chronologically
1: definitely um, so John had been kind of thinking about the main textbook um, you know for a while and we were like yes we need to do this we need to we need to disrupt the normativity that we see in this leadership studies and you know as we started to you know, work through and decide. So the textbook and the facilitator's guide actually kind of evolved simultaneously. Um, And as John started, you know, outlining and crafting the textbook uh, and we started doing the research to support what was going in that textbook, um, we also realized the importance of being able to help uh, both students, facilitators, uh, instructors, you know, just really be able to sit with and understand the content in the main textbook. You know, a lot of what, you know, the main textbook is putting forward is really being comfortable with deconstructing and reconstructing leadership theories. And that facilitator's guide is a hands on uh, application tool to really help us do that. And we wanted to make sure that we had, you know, content that would allow everyone to feel efficacious in doing that reconstruction and deconstruction. And so it happened at the same time um, because we wanted it to kind of be very fluid and, and really kind of informing uh, one another, actually. Uh, and so chronologically, they kind of started and, and completed at the same time. Um, but it was really to make sure that we we wanted to be able to provide practical uh, Application to kind of just help individuals become more comfortable with the content in the book and also showing the transferability of, of these concepts to uh, everyday instances. And Amy, feel free to mm-hmm. jump in on that one if I missed anything. Yeah, no,
2: I think you did a great job. Yep.
0: Cool. Okay, great. So Amy, uh, you wrote a really wonderful introduction to the book, and in there you reference Kolb is being a major inspiration for the structure of the facilitator's guide. So what in particular mm-hmm. about Kolb's theory of experiential learning was informative in y'all's process?
2: So um, I would say that it's, it's a, it was a guidepost um, in many ways for both our contributing authors and possibly for those who are facilitating the content. It's a, a baseline of understanding, you know, for those who want to use the activities. Um, and I think Kolb is a, framework that many educators are familiar with. Um, and we wanted the authors to think with this experiential lens when crafting their activities and discussion guides. Um, and we want everyone to kind of think through how do we make this um, memorable for students? Um, how do we make it something that they take with them and learn to apply in other settings um, besides you know, in, outside of the classroom or the workshop or the facilitation? Um, We also wanted to include the element of reflection significantly, Um, and while Cole addresses reflection, we even wanted to go deeper to consider critical reflection as a tool for teaching this content. Mm -hmm. And in critical reflection, we're asking students not only to reflect on the activity and the process that they experienced, which we often do in leadership education, but also to dig deeper and confront their own biases or interpretations that may have influenced, they, that they may have been influenced by um, in the dominant narratives of leadership that are so prevalent um, and starting to interrupt some of those biases through critical reflection we thought was key. Um, so I think we even took it maybe at a deeper level to that critical piece.
0: Great. Great. So, Natasha, y'all have in this facilitators' guide you have this just really, really incredible group of contributors. So, what was y'all's outreach process for for bringing those folks into the project?
1: Definitely. Um, so, we we definitely wanted this. Oftentimes, when we think about leadership uh, textbooks, they often originate in different in specific disciplines, and we wanted to make sure that while the authors and author of this of these Two books um, have our homes in higher education. That we position this, this, both of these texts to be interdisciplinary and um, have, you know, some depth and some range in terms of applicability and showing that you know it, this is this is necessary to be discussed in in all disciplines. And so we were very thoughtful about the contributors that. Uh, contribute to the facilitators guide, um, both through their discipline, through their expertise, um, and just from their own understanding of leadership and, and being comfortable with that, applying a critical perspective to um, leadership theory. And so we reached out to colleagues, uh, both faculty, both graduate students, both uh, administrators who are practitioners in the field who are doing the work, um, and then even outside of the field of higher education uh, who might be teaching in like a marketing um, or business uh, program or who, uh, you know, does diversity and inclusion in multicultural affairs. And so we tried to make sure that we had um, an array of um, contributors, and so we did, personal invitations um, to folks that we thought, you know, would be interested in participating um, and also, you know, got some feedback from colleagues uh, if they had recommendations, and um, that kind of started the ball rolling for kind of our first cohort of uh, contributors for the guide. And because John always supports the development of graduate students, there are several, Chapters uh, for which uh, both masters and doctoral students are collaborating on, which is great um, because we are learning that content as well as now putting it into practice and so it's both a, it was both a developmental kind of approach with the contributors that we invited as well as very intentional in terms of wanting to make this uh not just multidisciplinary but interdisciplinary to show how you know it's it's a synergistic um, approach and not just additive.
0: Okay, so to to pivot off of that a little bit, so the contributors wrote uh, individual uh, individual sections in the book, and so I was wondering uh, if y'all could both address this. So John and I discussed in previous episodes that uh, he recognizes some flawed theories in in his book, and so I wondered what the purpose was of having those uh, those same. Uh, the same theories addressed in the facilitator's guide.
1: Definitely. Amy, do you want to start or do you want me to start? You can start. Go for it. Sure. Um, So as with uh, theory, we we say that theory is always evolving, should be living, uh, and the theories that we focus on, uh, in the book are theories that are prevalent and that are often frequently used. And some of those theories that, you know, we, you know, are some points of contention, you know, maybe situated themselves in what we would consider, uh, industrial leadership paradigms and, you know, aren't always congruent with being, you know, inclusive and forward thinking and how we want to think about leadership being relational and complex and adaptive. Um, but the reality is that we still need to attend to those those other theories because they still inform a lot of the work that we do. And so while we, um, you know, address them in the book and John highlights, you know, some points of contention as he's working through that deconstruction of them, the reality is that we need to reconstruct those things. We want to make sure that um, we can provide tools to help um, those utilizing the facilitator's guide to become comfortable with being able to question those theories and why are they flawed and why should we, you know, while, while, why, while they do still exist, what are things that we need to be asking of those theories that, you know, can fill the gaps that we've noticed. And so that's why the facilitator's guide still has activities to help that process um, because, again, you don't want to, as they say, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like we still need to uh, attend to those theories. They should be evolving and not static. And so even though they may have gaps and some shortcomings, how do we bolster them and build them up so that they can become more uh, dynamic and uh, inclusive to all those for whom would like to use it and consume it?
2: I think she nailed that answer. (laughs) That's all all good.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. Great. All right. So, uh, Amy, is there a method that you would suggest to facilitators or instructors for applying the book? So to specify, is there a best way to scaffold the activities within to relate to the text and vice versa?
2: Sure. Um, First, I would preface this by saying that we intended the facilitator guide in a lot of ways to be a standalone book but also to complement the textbook. Um, and ideally, I think an educator would choose both. Um, and I think if I were new to the textbook and the facilitator's guide, I would begin by reading John's textbook and try to gain a greater understanding of how to apply critical perspectives to leadership. And then I would probably go and read the introduction to the facilitator guide in the first few chapters. Um, and then lastly, I think I would use the Facilitator Guide to consider ways to illuminate the content that I wanted to teach or that was most salient to my course or my program or my workshop, Um, because there may be certain theories that you're teaching um, that you want to specifically reference those sections and those chapters, or you may be doing an overview um, of leadership theory, so you might find the majority of the Facilitator Guide helpful. Um, In terms of differentiating or scaffolding, for participants who maybe have varying levels of familiarity with the content. Um, I think we tried to order the chapters with that in mind. So some of the earlier chapters are, are a good introduction to critical theory and to considering how to apply critical perspectives, and then we move into the actual application with the theories themselves. Um, I also think learning objectives are clearly indicated at the beginning of each activity um, in each chapter, and so instructors can kind of look through. I know there's a lot there, um, but you can kind of skim through and get a sense for what the intended outcomes of the activities are, and then hopefully align those and choose appropriate ones for the, you know, for the content that you're looking to share with your audience. Hmm.
1: Definitely. And I think, yeah, just adding on that, just the chapter, each chapter has a chapter overview and a chapter framework, um, and that really kind of provides what you would um, kind of a, a snapshot of um, or a Cliff Notes version of that chapter in the main textbook um, with some added oomph, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. uh, so that you don't per se have to have that the main textbook in hand, but if you wanted to go deeper, that the main textbook would allow you to go even deeper um, in kind of understanding the context of uh, of that particular theory um, or approach, um, so yeah, I think that it's it's the facilitators guide can definitely uh, stand alone, but it was designed you know as a support tool for the main textbook as well.
0: Okay, fantastic. So uh, Natasha, in a related question, do you believe that content from the facilitators guide can can be applied without having the context of the textbook? For instance, can I pull an activity from the facilitators guide? And use that for a standalone session for students or staff without them having read john 's book,
1: yeah, definitely. Um, to my point of the the overview and the framework um, kind of being at the beginning of each chapter, um, allowing you to kind of figure out well what what are these what are what are these particular clusters of activities focusing on um, and you can apply that to a workshop for, you know, your department or your division. And and then you don't per se need to have um, the, the main textbook. You don't need to use the main textbook to kind of uh, help individuals understand the content uh, in those areas. So they're very... Uh, self-explanatory, step-by-step, and learning outcomes and even processing questions um, for which you don't, again, need the main textbook to be able to apply uh, the material. I'll just tack on to that.
2: Yeah, I was going to say i would just tack on to that. Um, There's a chapter, for example, on strengths. And I know a lot of campuses are using the Finder with students, and I think mm-hmm. you could very easily go into the facilitator guide and take one or two of the activities that are about more deconstructing strengths um, and really putting that critical lens on strengths, because I don't think a lot of people are doing that. Um, and you could just take those activities and tack them on to the end of a strengths workshop to kind of add that additional element that you want your students to be thinking critically about the assessment as well as learning about the assessment. So it does it is handy in that way I think.
0: Mm.
1: I think I also would add, um, because of I think when I talk about the the, the textbook as well as the facilitator's guide being interdisciplinary, um I would also say interfunctional, if that even is a word. But when I think about mm-hmm. uh, my colleagues who, you know, work in multicultural affairs, um, who work in student engagement, who are not per se directly working with the development of leadership specifically, like it's not the Center for Leadership or anything like that, but these activities allow them to integrate leadership and, and, and situate leadership uh within their day-to-day work, and it's not, um, you know, so focused on let's deconstruct and reconstruct theory, but also let's apply how you are developing as individuals, Mm -hmm. um, both inside and outside the classroom, and here are some activities that allow you to do that. And so I think it's also very useful from a practical standpoint um, for whatever functional area you are working in. um, I find it very helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean that's certainly been the the case for me. I've already facilitated a couple of sessions that have been pulled out of the guide without the context of the book and uh, and I, I think they've you know I think they've been uh, largely successful so it's been been an awesome tool great. already for us here at GW so yeah great um, so my last question for y'all is I, i'm I'm sure that uh, and this is for both of you I'm sure that this has been. Uh, quite the journey, so uh what was unique about an academic endeavor of this scale? you know what are some some takeaways from uh from putting together a book?
1: well, as a doctoral well, I was a doctoral student doing this, so this this book has been truly a labor of love for four years for me, and it 's really kind of um shaped a significant part of my doctoral journey and uh in that for me it was very formative um, to kind of be a part of like you said an academic endeavor of such magnitude, and um, I think what was probably unique about it was that we were pulling voices from so many sectors across the country, across different disciplines, across different you know areas to really contribute to and make this a rich. Project, and you know, sometimes when you look at leadership textbooks, they're you know, individual, authored, written, and you know, that's what you have. And I think that one of the cool things about the facilitator's guide, um, and even the main textbook, because throughout the main textbook, there are vignettes from uh, leadership um, th- individuals who are engaging in leadership across different sectors um, professionally, and we have their narratives and we have their stories that are really kind of infusing and bolstering um, each chapter. And so I think what I find unique about the project is that it's centering so many voices and it's centering so many different perspectives, and it really is living living out what it means to kind of look at leadership more critically. And so I think that that, um, for me, was what stood out the most and what made this project uh, such a great experience for me is being able to collaborate and work with so many different individuals and allowing their voices to kind of situate leadership in very
2: unique ways. I will agree with everything Natasha said. Um, And I'll add that, just for me personally, it was a significant learning experience for me, Mm -hmm. and I think I benefited greatly from working with Natasha and with John and honestly with all of our contributing authors who are really exceptional at what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, In many ways, we had to practice critical reflection ourselves every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And I confronted some of my own biases and past practices that I had utilized in teaching leadership in realizing that I might have been perpetuating some dominant narratives in the way that I was mm. teaching. Um, and so throughout writing and editing this book, you know, I have adapted what I do in the classroom um, and feel like in many ways I'm a different educator um, at the mm. end of this journey than I was at the beginning. Um, and it does take some kind of digging deep and some hard work um, to... I think, confront some of those things. And I, I'm hoping that the folks who use this text will, in a in a good way, kind of experience the same thing. Um, and they'll feel like after they're done kind of adapting their their workshops or their teaching or their curriculum to incorporate some of these ideas that they feel like they're serving their students better. Um, I'm a better advocate, I think, for critique and deeper learning for my students. And like I said, I think I'm a better leadership educator because of it. Mm. Definitely.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up then. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. Um, Thanks so much to Amy and Natasha for joining me. Please look for copies of Leadership Theory of Facilitator's Guide for Cultivating Critical Perspectives from Jossie Bass or Amazon. And you can get more information about the SLPKC on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com backslash SA Lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC or Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at, at Miles, M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Amy and Natasha.
1: Thank you.